You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is Live from the home of the best one in three team in the National Football League, it's the 252 Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Gertz. I'm Chris Moore. And I'm Sam Mulberry. Chris, uh, are you sure that you want to go with the best one in three team? Or is it really the best one in three team? Mike, Mike Zimmer claims it is. He, he says we're on the bright path. Nothing really to worry about here. Let's move on. And maybe they could be 4 0. Right. It's, it's I'm confident that Bethel is the best three and one team in the Mayak. <laughs> I think that's a safer bet. All right, folks, it's been a while since we've done this podcast. So to remind you, the last time we were together, it was July, I believe. And mostly at that point, what we were talking about was the Olympics. Now, we're talking about things like basketball, for example. We've already talked about football. In segment two, we're going to hear from someone who has a job with a professional basketball team. But let's pick up where we left off and at least briefly think back over the Tokyo Games. Uh, Sam, we each suggested three events that our listeners should watch. Uh, were they worth the watch, the three things we suggested? Uh, I don't know. I didn't watch all of these. Um... Uh, Chris Moore had picked the modern pentathlon. Uh, Great Britain, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, I don't know, swept the gold medals. Uh, Joe Chung uh, won for the men and Kate French for the women. Chris, did you watch this? I did a little bit, mostly out of the obligation since I called it as the most important thing to watch. I stand by my call. Modern pentathlon is super interesting. However... I don't think it's right to focus on who won the golds in this case. This is one of those things to watch for the joy of the sport, something that most of us probably will never not only have the ability to participate in, but even the the financial wherewithal to participate mm-hmm. in modern pentathlon. And so it, it's sort of, it really is this sort of sporting oddity. Uh, I picked Katie Ledecky, who won two gold medals in the 800 free and the 1500 free, and two silvers in the 400 free and the 4x200 free, uh, making her the most decorated individual American woman swimmer, seven individual medals, six gold, one silver in individual events. Uh, she was definitely fun to watch. The swimming was really fun to watch. It always is. Yeah, I mean, of these three, that, that I think is the funnest thing to watch, and for all the reasons you said in July, Sam, it's yeah. it's been pretty great. And Chris Garrett, you actually picked something that I did watch and uh, had fun watching, which is water polo. And I I didn't realize it until watching it, but water polo is just team handball in a pool. It's the best. Uh, So it's exactly for us. That's right. Serbia won the men's gold uh, ahead of Greece, silver, and Hungary bronze. And the U.S. women's uh, won the gold over Spain winning the silver and Hungary winning the bronze. And the U.S. women won the gold medal game over Spain 14-5. to Did you watch any of this? I did, and I think I'll stick by it. I mean, I think um, the, the final result in some early matches, the U.S. women outclassed a lot of other teams, but they, they, I think they lost one match through some other close matches. So it's got some competitive balance to it, and I just think it's a really interesting sport that I probably don't want to watch year in and year out, but every four years I like to check in on. All right, so guys, do we have any parting shots about we're going to leave the Olympics and move on to other things? But before we leave the Olympics fine, we do have Winter Olympics coming up in Beijing in February of next year. And then the Summer Games are not that far off either, Paris 2024. Um, Chris, what, I mean, as someone who's taught our history and politics of sports class, who does international relations, what, what, what do you think about the Olympics right now? 
Yeah, so one of the cool things, <clears throat> no, that's not true. Nothing's cool about COVID. But one of the interesting things about the change to our sporting calendar is we're going to see two Olympiads in pretty close proximity, which is what we used to have uh, before we sort of began spacing them out every two years. So not only are they close together, that is the Tokyo Summer Olympics and the Beijing Winter Olympics, but they're both Asian Olympics and they're both by Asian rivals. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be important to pay attention to how China, which is an authoritarian government and therefore able to exercise a great deal more executive control over the Olympics, chooses to use that power to show an Olympics in the way they want to show it. The Tokyo Olympics, for all of its trappings and all of its size, was actually quite modest in comparison to contemporary Olympics. Let's see what Beijing actually holds for the Winter Games. And um, the other thing I would say really quickly is we're seeing just increased calls with every Olympiad for a more sustainable Olympics. A lot of people interpret sustainability to be purely environmental. So, for example, much was made about the Tokyo athletes' beds being made of recyclable cardboard. But I think sustainability goes beyond that, and there are only perhaps a handful of global cities that can easily absorb an Olympiad without significant public infrastructure investment. And that raises questions about the size and costs of these games. Yeah, so I, I'm actually starting to get interested in the Paris Games in 2024. Um, I think it was an article in Slate, the online journal, so I'll, I'll share that on my blog if people are interested, um, said that Paris's approach has basically been to do the Olympics on the cheap. The Paris is going to use some non-traditional sites. First of all, I think like beach volleyball is going to be by the Eiffel Tower, for example. And they're using the Grand Palais for um, some events, which is otherwise not a very visited site. Um, and the new building they're doing is going to be very limited, and they're using it to spark new developments in the section of Paris. I forget which arm this one is, but it's kind of towards the outskirts of Paris. So this is part of a larger model of essentially trying to uh, unify greater Paris and to more equitably develop some kind of neglected sections of the city. And so I, I think this is a possible model moving forward. Paris is the kind of city that does have the infrastructure in place already. And if we can accept the idea that you don't have to build new venues every single time you host a games, it, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe Paris kind of enters the rotation of cities that host this periodically or if other cities uh, imitate this model. I haven't heard a lot about what Los Angeles, for example, is thinking about doing in 2028 because um, Los Angeles has some of its kind of unique challenges. It doesn't have as great infrastructure. It's this sprawling, massive American city with kind of a lackluster downtown. It's very different than Paris. What I'm about to say is going to sound incredibly patrician, Chris, but we've done a lot of uh, Mount Rushmore's in the class, the, yeah. the top fours of anything. And it would be useful as an exercise to think, is there a Mount Rushmore of Olympic cities? Oh, that's pretty good. Okay, to be noted for later. Um, Chris, you mentioned uh, probably our most common topic in the past 12 to 15 months of this podcast, which is COVID. So just as a kind of general check-in question, I'll just ask you to, what is sports right now? And we can move away from the Olympics now, but what does sports tell us about the current state of the COVID pandemic and our response to it. As you've watched sports since July, so maybe that's baseball in August, the start of the college and pro football seasons, uh, other events. Um, what is sports telling us about COVID right now? Sports is this mirror for society and culture, we often say it is. I would like to say that sports is telling us less and less about the state of the pandemic. We have an increasingly, in the United States, partisan pandemic. I, I'll stop short of saying that COVID is a Republican disease. But the distribution of COVID cases in the United States and the severity of them is highly correlated with vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations. And the vaccine has become partisan. 
-hmm. with a much higher level of uh, Democrats getting vaccinated, but also a much higher level of, of Democrats being comfortable with things like vaccine mandates and mandatory masking in schools and other places than Republicans are. And yet, when we enter the sporting arena for major sporting events, whether it be baseball, basketball, football, we're not really seeing that kind of divide. Sports is sort of, sports which we've talked about in this class before have become more partisan. We're not really seeing sports become the partisan battlefield for some of these issues like it has been uh, in the general public or in school systems or things like that. With the notable exception of some high profile athletes who've been more or less vociferous about their willingness to be vaccinated, but that often isn't from a partisan reason. It's more out of an issue of, um, Bad, uh, bad information, ignorance, um, reticence of other kinds. Well, or it could be, I'm willing to consider personal health. Like more, than, more than the general public, these are individuals whose livelihoods depend on their health, right? Like, um, sure. I think we've heard caught in clean towns, the Timberwolves forward center, right? What, what did he lose? Like 50 pounds for his bout with COVID, which you know, I think has made him very eager to be vaccinated. He also lost family members. Um, I think others then have been really concerned about the effects of vaccination on their health. Now, the other thing that really strikes me though, is in addition to Republicans being vaccine hesitant, one group that does seem to have a higher rate of vaccine hesitancy is African-Americans for historically really good rates. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think black Americans have, uh, are not just subject to different kinds of disparities in health outcomes, but have you know, famously been the subjects uh, on medical experimentation, exploited practices. And, and so there's a kind of hesitancy there. And so I don't know how much that explains some of those athletes, right? For example, we're gonna talk about the NBA a lot more in segment two, and there have been some very high profile black basketball players who have refused, right? Or claimed a religious exemption. Um, and it's put their teams in kind of interesting positions, right? For example, uh, there, there's the idea that some of these athletes might only play away games, is that? Is that actually a viable option for um, some players? Andrew Wiggins, I think this came up with. Well, okay, so that plot continues to twist because the um, coach uh, of of the Golden State Warriors, for whom Andrew Wiggins is a player, announced um, very recent, very recently, that Andrew Wiggins has now been vaccinated. So he basically oh, okay. outed outed Wiggins as has as as vaccin vaccinated. So whatever questions there were about that. It, not gone away. Okay. Was it Kyrie Irving? Was that the other one we were talking uh, about? Kyrie Irving was, it, it, I don't believe has been vaccinated yet. And yeah. is one of the more sort of the focal point of NBA anti-vaxxer conversations because he's been the most vocal about it. Okay. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about here, and it kind of maybe a shorter segment to the room for the second, and this goes back to the Olympics, but it's, it's really beyond the Olympics. One of the really prominent athletes at the Tokyo games was Naomi Osaka, who's Japanese American tennis player. Uh, I think helped light the torch in the opening ceremonies, did compete in right. the women's singles event, but lost in the third round. And then the U.S. Open a month later, again, lost in the third round, had already had a very difficult season and, and essentially is simply not playing at this moment, right, at least for the rest of this year. And I think it's been really, you know, like it or not for, I don't know if it's fair to her or not, become this poster child for a renewed discussion about mental health mm -hmm. or... Uh, I mean, it's most likely as professional athletes, but athletes more generally. For that matter, to some extent, that uh, I think Simone Biles entered that discussion as well, right? That, that she um, opted out of at least most of the competitions she was entered in um, because her head just wasn't right. It wasn't safe for her to compete, right? Um, and I think that's kind of maybe tied into those Osaka conversations as well. Um, 
I'm actually teaching a healthcare seminar right now. We're going to talk about mental health in about a month. So this maybe just gives me some fodder for discussion with my students. But what, what is your takeaway, Chris or Sam, from watching how we talk about athlete mental health? What does that maybe reveal about larger discussions about mental health? Or maybe what does that tell us about what we expect out of athletes, how we view them? Um, and maybe, again, the kind of values we attach to sports, the priorities we attach to sports. I had a couple thoughts, but I'm kind of curious what your take was. Well, let me, let me jump in first, because I think I have a, a two-part uh, I have good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is the num uh, Naomi Osaka and women's tennis, since in the modern era, continues to sort of fly the radar of a lot of Americans in terms of public discourse. So even though Naomi Osaka lit the, lit the, uh, helped light the torch in Tokyo and is a prominent player in women's tennis, She's not nearly the public figure that Simone Biles has been, especially during an Olympic year. Sure. So uh, Biles has much more been in the public eye. And the amount of, the amount of people who rose to the defense of Simone Biles uh, far outweighed, I would say, in my mind, the internet trolls who sort of criticized her for failing to compete in events that she was signed up to compete for. Mm -hmm. So I find sort of defense of mental health as an explanation for athlete performance to be really heartening. Mm-hmm. At the same time, where criticism did occur, it really seems to ex we seem to not yet be able to square in our own perceptions of athletes their mental health as a com as concomitant with their physical health, and so there's a lot of sort of assumptions of well, you are in peak physical condition, you are well cared for, you are hyper analyzed by coaches and doctors and others, etc., which we know from the summer is not a reason that will shield you from physical abuse, mm -hmm. uh, but there's this assum underlying assumption that if those things are great for you, then certainly your mental health should be good too. Yeah. And that's really no, it, problematic and troubling. It, it, it is. I mean, so that, that's exactly one thing I was thinking about um, because that is one of the things of this course is what do we mean by health and what are the components of it? And I think mental health is something we, we tend to neglect or understate, right? Um, I mean, the other, and this I think is something we've talked about in class is that these are not just athletes, but we, we view them as entertainers, right? Why do we get upset at the idea that an athlete wouldn't compete, right? Like, it's because maybe we invest a little too much in their ability to distract us, right, to entertain us, to, to give meaning to our lives. And again, I think you're right. I mean, tennis is not at the level of some of these other sports. I don't know if, um, like how tennis aficionados, if that's how they feel about seeing Naomi Osaka play or not seeing her play. But that that does strike me as an odd thing that we attach to that kind of work in American or global society. It's like they owe us the entertainment right. and maybe the risky kind of participation in that activity. Um, I'd let us circle back around to that question, Chris, in future conversations, because it's easy for me to, as a casual viewer of the Olympics, to say Naomi Osaka owes me nothing. Mm -hmm. But if I pay money, if I pay, if I buy tickets and a jersey to go see Kevin Durant play for the Nets, does he owe me to show up and play? Right. No, that, that that's an excellent that's an excellent. I don't actually think it's an easy question to answer. I, I yeah. Well, we maybe we should just come back to that and kind of leave it off there. Um, there are other things we can talk about. Even kind of casually, Chris, you remind me, we probably should have been talking about the sexual abuse scandal still unfolding in gymnastics, but maybe we should leave that and, and see what the next steps are with the investigation. Yes. Um, so like the FBI's uh, handling of the Nasser case or something like that. It, it definitely makes me want to, by the way, spend more time on gymnastics in the class as we teach it next spring. I think we have maybe like a project group deal with it, but maybe it deserves a little bit more concerted um, coverage from the whole class. Thank you, Greg. Uh, 
Okay, so that, that's just a taste of what we're doing this week on the 252. After a break, we are going to talk to one of the chaplains of a professional basketball team and ask what it looks like to be a member of the clergy in that very particular setting. Back after a break. This week in sports history. New York, New York, October 6th, 1857. A 20-year-old lawyer named Paul Morphy wins the first American Chess Congress, defeating German master Louis Paulson. Two years later, after a world tour that saw him beat most of Europe's best players, Morphy suddenly retires from competition at age 22. New York, New York, October 7th, 1985. After starting at the University of Kansas and winning an Olympic gold medal in Los Angeles, Lynette Woodard becomes the first woman to join the Harlem Globetrotters. Twelve years later, Woodard comes out of retirement at age 38 to play in the inaugural season of the WNBA. East Rutherford, New Jersey, October 9th, 1989. Replacing Mike Shanahan in Week 5, Art Shell becomes the first African-American coach in NFL since 1921. His Los Angeles Raiders beat the Jets on Monday Night Football and finished the season 8-8. Eight and eight. One year later, Shell is named Coach of the Year for leading the Raiders to the AFC Championship game. Dallas, Texas, October 12, 1989. In the largest trade in NFL history, the Cowboys send star running back Herschel Walker to the Minnesota Vikings. Dallas nets eight draft picks in the deal, which eventually yield players like Emmett Smith, Russell Maryland, and Darren Woodson, who helped the Cowboys win three Super Bowls in the 1990s. Third and goal from the 10, and a draw to Smith. the acceleration here. Just a simple draw. He runs through the arm tackle of, a, of Jeff Wright, through the arm tackle of Kelso, through the arm tackle of Darby to score. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to this week's episode of the 252. As usual, we like to devote our second segment to interviewing someone we find interesting in the world of sports. And I think we have a particularly interesting guest this week. Matt Moberg is joining us from, looks like his home in Minneapolis, it to talk about home. a couple of his jobs, but specifically the work he does with the Minnesota Timberwolves, our local reputedly NBA franchise. Oh, of, come on, Chris. I'm sorry. Yeah, why do you got to start on that note? There's, right there? there is reason for hope, man. The Twins just so finished last place. The Vikings it. just lost again. I'm sorry. No, it's going to be a great year. <laughs> it's going to be have, the best year ever. We have some young stars we're building around. We're probably going to make a big trade any day now um, and run all the way back to the playoffs and lose yep. the first round. Not, yeah. not, uh, not, <laughs> no, there you go no, again. No, What's wrong no. with me? It's like I've lived <laughs> you, here my whole life. You need that K-Fan. I don't know if you listen to K-Fan, but they have that like rope where they start tasing the guy. I will always love that the rules. Everything's going to be fine. That's what you need right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, it's happening instead. Uh, we'll go there. So um, Matt is a graduate of Bethel University. Where we're recording this podcast where we're on faculty. Uh, Matt finished in 2008. He now has a couple of different jobs. You're the co-pastor of a congregation in Minneapolis called The Table Minneapolis. Uh, and you're also co-chaplain of the Minnesota Timberwolves, which is mostly why, we're, why you're here. So 
Matt, let me just start. We always like to actually start with what we call your sports story. So just mm -hmm. uh, whether this oh takes us gosh. into your Bethel time or not, like um, before becoming chaplain of the Minnesota Timberwolves, what would you describe as your sports story? Were you an athlete, a fan, disinterested? Just however yeah. you would tell that story. Well, I mean, if you didn't have Google to check this out, I would say I was a four-sport varsity athlete, uh, <laughs> D1. But assuming that you do have Google and that your World Wide Web is up and running, I never played any sports. I always loved sports. Grew up in a very sporty family. Was always a big fan. Always loved the, the Wolves, loved basketball. Uh, the peak of my athletic accomplishments probably happened in basketball on a carpeted church floor um, where I scored a basket in a church basketball game wearing cargo shorts. And so, um, no, I wasn't exactly a star athlete um, by any stretch of imagination, but I did grow up with brothers. And, and I had a couple of brothers that actually played football at Bethel, and they were a lot better in that round. But, yeah, it wasn't my jam. It, you, you're in a safe place. You're among friends I mean, It's here. so funny you asked that question because I don't think anyone's asking me a sports story because they just know <laughs> there's well, no way this guy's got a sports story. It, I mean, I've always been music and art. I've always been a music and art guy. It hasn't really been a sports primary well, driver for me. And that, that's actually not unusual of this segment. Like We've had everyone from Super yeah. Bowl winning football players <laughs> to folks more like um, Chris, Sam, and me, to be honest. So, well, I'll so, tell you this. My, my first year with the Wolves, my co-chaplain was um, a guy by the name of Troy Hudson. He used to play for the Wolves. Mm -hmm. And Troy and I were having breakfast. And he goes like, Matt, so like, did you play for the U? Or did you play? <laughs> he just assumed that you're chaplain. Surely you got a basketball pedigree behind you. I said, Troy, I've never touched a ball my entire life. I don't know what I'm doing out there. <laughs> we haven't spoken since, actually. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's let's move the story forward then from that distinguished sports career to uh, maybe just say briefly like how you came to Bethel and then especially how you got from college into ministry of now various sorts. Yeah, um, man, that's a long story. Let me try to give you the cliff notes. Uh, was I was I was always in trouble as a kid, so I was kicked out of church at a young age. This can be a real cliff notes. Probably leave more questions than answers, but I wasn't intending to go to Bethel. That's where I'm trying to go with that. I was trying to go to the U of M or or the University of Duluth. And um, am I saying that wrong? Duluth University? UMD, University that's what I'm thinking of. Wow, okay. I was like, that didn't sound right. My mom, though, was working in the admissions office at Bethel. And so she told me that if I, if I, got, if I went to Bethel, there'd be a significant break in the tuition. And so I said, okay, sign me up. <laughs> Say no more. And so I went and... Um, I got really fascinated in a lot of different twists and turns in my story with scripture, with church history, with, um, you know, I, I, for me, it was Martin Luther King and going to Sanctuary Church and reading his writings for the first time. Growing up in Evangelical Baptist Church, King wasn't very talked about. In fact, you problematically talked about. Like when he came up, there was a moment perhaps of praise, but it always was followed by, and we also know about his infidelity. And he mm. wasn't... A, and so it was, for me, learning about King at Bethel really brought me into the faith tradition. And I came at it at a place, you know, where I wasn't defending beliefs I already had. I was skeptic, still am skeptic. Like, that's that's always been my M.O. And so I didn't need to believe anything. But I got swept up in it. And I really found that uh, the Jesus movement, the Jesus story was beautiful. And, and I wanted to I wanted to build a beautiful life. And I found that that was a path that I want to pursue. And so I joined the biblical and theological studies. And then I went to Fuller Seminary uh, to get my master's afterwards. Okay. And tell us a little bit about the table. That's your, uh, your other pastoring job here. 
Yeah, so the table started as a worship service, um, like a worship expression of Christ Presbyterian Church in Edina, which is a bigger church, uh, Presbyterian Church. And um, the table, we got to a point where it's like we we wanted to create a space where all people were welcomed and all people were seen and safe and loved. And there were certain boundary lines that that uh, were put in place at CPC that we just couldn't cross. And so we decided that we are going to start a community in South Minneapolis. And um, it's been beautiful. I mean, it really is this this beautiful, small community of misfits and people who have more questions than answers who are just trying to find community and connection and are actually doing so. And so we've been doing that now since 2000. We got, and we got started right during Trump. I mean, 2016. And so it was an interesting time to start a church and um, and try to be a, a, a force for good news, in, in especially in our city. We're very like a localized theology where it's, we're very Minneapolis centric. And um, how do we immerse ourselves in our neighborhoods to actually bring love and light and hope and well, since since you mentioned that, I promise we'll get to wolves in a second. But because we've got you here, I'm curious, um, what was it like? Being part of that community in the midst of George Floyd, the protests, uh, calls for police reform, defunding. What, what did you see as your role if you're trying to be a source of love and light in your community yeah. during that that time? Yeah. So we were very active, uh, very present. Especially, I think for when you ask about my role, it was you know being a clergy witness. And so I don't wear a collar on Sundays, but I did every time I was down at a protest or. Um, even, you know, during the trial this past spring now over in Brooklyn Park with Dante Wright. And I think that, uh, you know, again, like part of part of when we started this church, we wanted to create something that we felt like was absent earlier. We want to like what is we all people my age and people of my disposition that are more skeptical, that are more like, uh, OK, feel uncomfortable in church context. We have a lot of gripes, but we tend to just stay in the stands and throw stones from afar. And so if we're going to get into the game, what does it look like to actually embody these things and not just express them? And and so we, we prioritize uh, presence. We're not telling people like, this is the position, these are the words, and this is what you need to have on your signs. We're saying you need to be there because people are in pain and people who are in pain should not be alone. And And so, especially if you care about your city, especially if you love this city, and so we did that as a community. We prioritized that as a leadership, you know, and we even got, I, I made sure that some of our Wolves guys were out there as well, not to connect that dot too far fetched. But when I called Carl, Carl was in a time too, where he had just lost his mom and other family members to COVID. He hadn't left the house in weeks. And yet I said, Carl there, and I might be wrong on this and you guys, you guys might know better, but in my memory, I don't remember any local sports leaders athletes or coaches mm -hmm. who have who have actually been like immersed in the community in a way that says this matters to you and it matters to me and i'm going to stand with you in this moment and it's a really it, it goes a long ways when they do mm. and so i i had carl and josh and uh, a couple other guys couldn't but go down to a press conference and be with the people which was a big moment for them both for carl i mean just leaving the house and being with other people but also for our city to see like if it's they're not just like these tourists here like mm -hmm. it matters to them too okay. and so yeah the was... whole thing was overwhelming it had a lot of different flavors and colors i'm in a well, rant so you need to cut me off just yeah no no that's okay i think you actually just, you gave us our segue here into talking then about the wolves because you just mentioned a couple of them so i assume carl anthony towns and then josh okogi is that the yeah other player you mentioned okay so um uh, boy, I don't even know where to start here. First of all, what is a chaplain? 
of an MBA sure. team and how did you get started in that role? Yeah, it's a good question, right? What is the chaplain? Um, so I got started because my good friend is Ryan Saunders, who was the head coach mm. for the Wolves. And so when Ryan got the gig, he gave me a call. And prior to me, there were two other chaplains who had been doing it since like the inaugural season, which I think was like 1990 or something of that sort. And so they had been there for a long time, older gentlemen, very uh, men of character. Um, I didn't get a lot of time with them, but I enjoyed the time that I had. And so he invited me in. The gig is basically, I mean, it, it's it's hard to say a little bit. So I'll tell you like the baseline. When I first showed up at the first team practice, Gerson and Ryan were both like, we want you to be borderline mentoring, present, like in these guys' corners, helping them not just be good players, but really good people. Like, what does it look like to cultivate flourishing in their lives? Because they need it. And um, uh, and then so I, I do that relationally, like we're relationally in touch with with the guys. And um, and sometimes that's easy. I mean, my first seat, we had half our roster was traded at the end of the mm -hmm. year. So all these guys I got to know were all of a sudden gone. And and now then Ryan's gone and now Gerson's gone. And, and it's just, it's a never end. It's a weird, when you're talking about a relational ministry, it's a hard thing to do when when one of your guys is Jarrett Culver and all of a sudden Jarrett's in, in Memphis. And so my main role though, like if I had to, this is what I primarily do. I'll show up at 5 p.m. tonight. I'll be in the locker room. I'll be at shoot around and whatnot, just to be present. It's a ministry of presence in that way. In that and an hour prior to tip off, we have um, a chapel. And it's like a 15 minute chapel. It's a short chapel, but I'll go into both the locker rooms and I'll invite both of the teams to come together in another room and uh, the players can opt in on their own. There's no forced, you know, but there, it is interesting. Like some teams have like uh, the Portland Trailblazers, like um, Damian Lillard and, and uh, McCollum, they, they said to their whole, it's a priority that we're all at chapel. So all of a sudden when they are in town, we have to have like two rooms to really squeeze everybody in. But but by and large, it's a handful of guys that will show up and and then we'll do the chapel and then we'll just be around. But that's kind of like the the nuts and bolts of it. Now, there's the extras, too. Like right now, yesterday, uh, we're starting up a book group um, called Uncommon Marriage based on mm -hmm. Coach Dungy's work in light of just some of the things that have been happening in the Wolves organization. And how do we actually have this conversation right now and dive into it collectively with focus and and in a sustainably engaging way. So, right, uh, man, can I ask, when you say do chapel, and we could talk about yeah. that your job too, um, do you think of that as a, is that a Christian worship service? Are you assuming players are coming from that place? Or are you trying to transcend any particular religion? Mm -hmm. How do you navigate some of that? Yes, yeah, uh, so I assume there's really in there, right? What'd you say? I assume it's a it's a religiously plural environment. You can't necessarily assume. It, or yeah, are they uh, well, it is, but um, this is like actually one of the areas I struggle with a little bit because it's very Christian. Okay. And I think w there's, so for example, my first year, what what am I offering Gorgie Jang? You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. if, if we're going into a, 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 a Christian chapel and, and a lot of it's like, that's that's just where a lot of our players are coming from. It's the, the tradition that they, they grew up in and it's the native tongue. But like the NBA is not offering anything to Gorgie in that way. Like there's not any mom coming in who's going to help me, you know, and and Gorgie, I've talked. Yeah. So it, it is a very Christian uh, chapel. When we go in there, the, the bigger challenge, I think, for me is is how do you make this something that's not just a token activity, like the, the lamp being rubbed for good luck before you go out? Because you have 15 minutes. We're not like going deep into scripture. 
and I don't, I, I personally am so like cringy around pep talks that are <laughs> spiritually juiced that uh, it's uncomfortable, but like, yeah, so it, we're looking at a text tonight. We're going to look at a, a text. We'll jump in. We'll name a few things. We'll go win one for the Gipper. I don't know. Like that's basically honestly it. My my hope, honestly, is that that's a space where we just further some of the relational engagement mm-hmm. for more of the things that can happen outside of it. Sure. So what's um what's similar then uh, about your work as pastor, co-pastor of the table, and your work as chaplain of the Timberwolves? And what's maybe very different when you've got to move from one role into the other? Is just the context is very different, or is it the actual calling is very different? Uh, yeah, I you know I don't think um, it's interesting. I haven't thought about that. I think one of the things that's been really surprising to me and at first was kind of depressing was getting to know some of these guys and realize that nobody has an easy road. And like, Mm -hmm. even when you get to the top, it can be very lonely and it's not like you finally made it. And all of a sudden there's an abundance of joy for you to sink your teeth in. There are problems all around. And so I think for those of us who are not millionaires and living this life that we all envy, you just assume that like, man, those guys got it all, but get in the front row seat to see that they hurt just like the people in our community hurt and that we're all a lot closer than we think. Um, that means that my approach is gonna be very similar in both. The context is very different. You know, I mean, part of it too, is like these guys, um, they are, their part, their, their loneliness can sometimes be self-inflicted because they, they don't know who to trust. They've had so many different people that have come at them for clout, for cash, for whatever. And so when you have some white boy from South Minneapolis, who's like, I want to be your friend too, is like, okay, who are you? Like, why, what do you actually want? And, yeah. and for good reasons, that question comes up. And so um, that, that's part of the difference is, is I think you look at table folk and it's people are longing for connection and, and, Timberwolves, they are too, but they can't just access it recklessly. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm fascinated by something sort of Chris alluded to, which is the ongoing presence of chaplaincy as a part of um, a U.S. It's, sports franchise, which is secular otherwise. Yeah. Um, do you have a sense of you, you talk about everyone has an interest, and I can appreciate why players who are wealthy and successful would be skeptical of having this other, you know, this sort of this other person sort of placed in front of them. Do you get a sense of what the interest is from the perspective of the league or from this perspective of, yeah. of, of, of the, of the ownership? Yeah. Um, yes and no. So I, so the, the way that it works is that as an NBA chaplain, I am, uh, the league does not have ownership over the program, but the league allows the program. Okay. And so the program, if, if that makes sense, it does. Uh, it, and I should be able to go more into the details on this, but honestly, I've missed like most of the chaplain <laughs> meetings that happen at two o'clock on Wednesdays. I'm like, guys, I can't do this. But they, um, it is, it, that's what it is. It's an allowed thing, not like a mandated thing. Gotcha. But the, to your point though, it is a wild concept that in a U.S. sports franchise in a league like this, that there is still is a, a, there's a Christian program that is before every that is readily available before every NBA game, um, and the invites being put out to every player and coach, and and yeah, it's it's different in that way. 
so, so and part it, of it's like the the buy-in is 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 there. I mean, for, as far as it's it's a different leash that's warranted too. So there's guys that have mm. that, like for example, the one of the chaplains out. I can't remember if it's Brooklyn or or New York. Like they are, um, you are. If you're gonna, we'll allow it, sir. But you're here for just the chapel time. So show up at six o'clock. Then you have to leave at six fifteen, and you're gonna need to get your own ticket because we're not gonna pay for you to stay for the game. You can't come in the locker room. You can't really be out in the court. You're here to chapel, and that's it. And like, so there's a different leash that's extended depending upon where you are. But the program is in place. Hmm. So, man, my understanding is this league wide. Does every team, every game, every team have a chapel, and every game have a chapel? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Is that un? Do you know is that unusual for American pro sports? Does the NFL have this? Baseball, etc. You know, it's interesting. I'm about to, um, because I'm trying to get Coach Dungey in to talk with the guys about this this book of his. I've been connecting with some NFL guys, and I'm trying to get a better grasp on it. Like, I know there's a man that I have not met. Uh, Tom Lamphere, who's the chaplain for the Vikings. I don't know what's involved in that because I can't imagine that team's a lot bigger than the Timberwolves team, first of all. Right. And I just, I have no idea what goes inside of that. But yeah, so that's a long way to say I, have, I don't know. Okay, fair enough. So Matt, how long, I should have asked that. How long now have you been been doing this chaplaincy work? Yeah, tonight's going to be the start of my third season Okay. Wolves. Okay. So let's give you some time. Has this work changed how you think about sports? Um, but let me add that has also changed how you think about religion. Hmm. Yeah. Y- yes, but not directly. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I'm answering the latter and not the former sure. questions. I'm thinking about just this past year and the conversations that I've had. You know, specifically around with Carl around loss and losing his mom, his best friend. Um, and um, other losses in his family from that. Um, and so that, that inevitably, it should shape your theology and your mm-hmm. understanding of, of life and, and the divine. And so that, that's had a definite impact. Um, but sports, yes, uh, definitely. I think I'm a lot more empathetic towards, I have a soft spot for players that I didn't have before. Not that I was cold and like, screw these guys, but, but like very much so, um, it's hard. It's hard making it to that place. It's hard staying in that place. You know, we had a guy on our, Jared Culver who was struggling on the court. Um, he just he just struggled to find like his flow in the system. And and it is what it is. But on top of it, he's just a very sweet kid who is very quiet and is. Um, so it's hard to like find your place in the locker room and not just on the court. And so you see these, and then you get all the noise off off the court where. He's coming from small town Texas, where his dad is a pastor, and he's got this, this beautiful innocence that you want to protect. And yet, you walk on the court, and people are yelling "f you" at you, and you're like, "I didn't." It's just hard, man. Like, and I, and I, I always say that, like, I understand they have a lot of good things coming in. There's, there's, they're getting paid for the cost, but, but I, I do my, I feel for them. Yeah, I feel for them. And even like, honestly, like you know, different transitions that we've had in the front office, people have made a lot of mistakes. But it's hard to be healthy in a dog-eat-dog world like this. It, it's hard to, like, maintain character and integrity and not be, like, moved by fear. And um, because part of it, too, is, like, if you're not running on fear, people will crush you. 
Like if you're at peace with where you are and what you have and who you are, you're going to be seen as a problem. Like you need mm -hmm. to have that anxiety that we all have. Otherwise you don't care. And, and so that's, but then you have tragedies that really wake you up to say like, wait a second, life really is a gift. Love is the point. I'm going to slow down and actually live as if that's true. Like Carl has, he's taken relationships a whole different direction now that he is, uh, now that he lost his mom. And he is, he's going on vacations and he's, he's slowing. It's, it's beautiful to see that you can't allow this thing to completely consume you because you're far more than just a player. In fact, that's the one thing, you know, you ask about chapels, every chapel, the one thing I always say um, that really is the only, the main thing I want them to hear is that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Hmm. I want to remind them of that every time and i need that reminder all the time mm -hmm. and and that's when they start to step into that awareness that who they are matters they realize there's a lot of work and yeah that's well, maybe, that, maybe that's a good place to leave off because i feel like that's a good message for all of us in our different walks of life but sure. um, yeah Matt, thanks for sharing some insight. This is something I knew very little about, and I feel like I have a much better handle. And I, like you, I, I just feel like I'm already a little bit more empathetic towards athletes hearing you talk right. about the kind of ministry you do with them. Yeah, um, yeah. But I appreciate it. It also must be a different kind. I mean, it's, it's relational, and yet you're in a business where people all of a sudden might leave in the middle of the season. Yeah, You mentioned Jerry Culver. You mentioned Ryan Saunders, <laughs> right, who got you into this, and his job goes away. So it's, yeah. it's got to be a difficult job in that respect for you, too. It is. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, Matt, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, yeah absolutely, for you guys. There. Thanks for having me on. And maybe we can have you in class sometime if schedules allow. It would be great yes, for students to bring me in. All bring right. me in, coach. <laughs> he's, he's ready to play. Thanks, Matt Moberg, for joining us. Uh, listeners, we'll be back in just a second to wrap up this episode of the 252. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. All right. Thanks again to Matt Boberg for joining us to talk about his work as chaplain of the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. And while we're at it, good luck to the Timberwolves. I know I sounded like just a terribly jaded Minnesota sports fan there, but this is going to be the year, I can tell. Speaking of the NBA, it is time for three to see. We're going to recommend three sporting events coming up later this month of October 2021. Sam, going to start with hoops. Well, I am very excited to see that we're so close to the start of the NBA season. Uh, the season tips off on Tuesday, October 19th with a star-studded doubleheader, Nets versus Bucks and Warriors versus Lakers. But that's not my three to see. I'm picking the Thursday, October 21st matchup between two teams that flashed their young talent big in last year's playoffs, the Dallas Mavericks uh, traveling to the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, this game features two of the most fun 22-year-old stars in the NBA, Dallas's Luka Doncic, who averaged uh, almost 28 points a game, eight rebounds and 8.6 assists per game, and Atlanta's Trey Young, uh, over 25 points and over nine assists per game. Both Doncic and Young showed up big in last year's playoffs. Young taking the Hawks to the conference finals behind scoring uh, 28.8 points per game and Doncic putting up 35.7 points per game, taking LeBron and the Lakers to game seven. And they're both projected to have big things happen this year. All right. Thanks, Sam. Chris Moore. 
I want to co-sign Sam's, but anybody who talks to me knows that I have a complicated relationship with college football. It's my favorite sport, but I also know how exploitative it is for people who are ostensibly students of institutions of higher education. Things are changing quickly in the legal institutional structures around college football, and this podcast has covered that. But in the meantime, if you want to dip into the sport itself and see a quintessential college football game, check out the two teams at the top of the Big Ten, Iowa and Penn State. Both teams retain punishing Big Ten defenses, but have adapted to the speed that originated in the SEC. Penn State has a senior quarterback whose experience gives them the edge, although Iowa's really good too, guys. (laughs) The winner of the game will be shortlisted for the four-team college football playoffs. I know who my in-laws are rooting for down in Iowa. Uh, Another kind of football from this, Chris. We're less than a year away from the Men's FIFA World Cup. And regional qualifying resumes this month. The U.S. men's national team has won, has won one of their first three matches, but they haven't lost yet. And that's good enough to have them sitting in the last three of three of the three automatic qualifying places from what's called CONCACAF. Of the Americans' three octagonal matches this month, the biggest will find them hosting Costa Rica in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Chris. On hey. October 13th. The Yanks have won the last three friendlies, but the last time it counted in qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, Los Ticos came to New Jersey and blanked the U.S. 2-0, a very forgettable World Cup qualifying for the U.S. men's national team back in 2018. Uh, you guys, we have a, a couple minutes here. Um, there's no good reason for me to have done this, except that I was curious when I looked at this. And I, I asked myself, um, we always recommend three to see which sports have we been most often recommending. So <laughs> I actually took the time last week to go through all the scripts I could find. So this is like three dozen episodes worth. Uh, here are a few of my findings and see if this this is surprising or predictable. First of all, we have recommended now a total of 28 total sports. Now that's combining like biathlon and skiing. So you could make it like 30 if you want to stretch it, but that's that's pretty good. Um, the top four of those, however, basketball, 19 times, football, 12, soccer, 7, and baseball, 7. Those are the only sports that each of us have recommended at least once. Okay. Okay. Number five on that list is hockey, recommended six times, all by me. <laughs> and also, <laughs> I'm also responsible for the only two rugby mentions in 3 to C history. Now, likewise, Sam is the only one to nominate horse racing four times. And Chris Moore, you're the only one to mention golf twice and, of course, esports also twice. <laughs> Remember the World Pokemon Championship recommendation from 2019? Um, it's been a while. Let's right? go with yes. <laughs> so does that does that surprise? Did anything I just tell you surprise you about what we've what we've done? I'll only I'll only throw on the table that I really do genuinely love hockey, but mm-hmm. uh, my NHL team has been abysmal for the duration of this podcast. Hasn't so. stopped me, Chris Moore. That's, that's no excuse. No, I, I, I think also sometimes I kind of claim the hockey spot and, and squeeze you out a little bit. Uh, Sam, um, you're a go-to basketball guy. You have recommended basketball 12 times now. Well, it's because I think if you look at all of those, it's also a lot like this week where I like to just pick out a star that I want to see or a couple yeah. stars. That that tends to be my uh, my bent on that when there's not horse racing to talk yeah. about. Well, and also like most of most of what we've done has been fall, winter, spring sports. I'm not too surprised baseball is a little bit uh, shorted on our list. So we'll just have to do more in the summer, I guess, to, to take care of that. Uh, there, there is one sport. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but there is one decently popular sport we have never recommended. And if you two don't take care of it, I will take care of it next time. So I'll leave that. And maybe listeners, maybe you just like follow this religiously and you know what sport I'm talking about right now. Or maybe I'm unusual and get your highlight picks in, folks. Now, 
<laughs> okay, so that's that's our episode for October of the 252. Again, this is kind of an occasional podcast at this point. Chris is teaching a lot of classes. We're busy, but we are aiming to do this maybe like once a month um, because Chris will be going on sabbatical and I'll be teaching the actual class. So we want to at least uh, start thinking about sports or help me start thinking about sports maybe record a few pieces that we can give the students uh, when the class starts in the spring. Uh, so until then, Chris, you want to take us out? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks for listening to us. And if you like what you heard in this podcast, don't be afraid to subscribe to Channel 3900. We've got a lot of different things coming down the pipe, including the finale of Avatar with Academics. I'm very excited about that. And lots of other great things, too. So thanks for listening to us. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, until, you're, until you hear from us again, go Royals. <laughs>